Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with paralysis at home while war rages abroad as House Republicans, who have been wrangling behind closed doors, prepare to vote on the House floor for a new speaker on Tuesday at noon. Joining us to discuss whether Jim Jordan will fall short like Steve Scalise did as the date for a government shutdown fast approaches is Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. The co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, we'll discuss his latest article at CNN, Jim Jordan Sums Up What's Wrong with the House GOP. Then we'll look into the results of Sunday's election in Poland, which saw the right-wing Law and Justice Party fail to get a third term as the centrist civic platform led by former European Council President Donald Tusk is poised to form a new government. Joining us to discuss this welcome reversal of democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe is Jan Kubik, a professor of political science at Rutgers University and professor at the University College London. His books include The Power of Symbols Against the Symbols of Power, Post-Communism from Within, Social Justice, Mobilization and Hegemony, and 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Commemoration. Then finally we will assess whether the reactionary forces in Guatemala, led by the corrupt outgoing president and his crooked attorney general, backed by the military oligarchs, drug cartels and vigilantes, can deny the popularly elected government of President-elect Aravello his right to govern. Joining us is Anita Isaacs, a professor of social science and political science at Haverford College. She's the author of Politics of Military Rule and Transition in Ecuador, and At War with the Past, The Politics of Transitional Justice in Post-War Guatemala, and is the co-author of an article at the New York Times, If the Election Deniers Succeed, Guatemala Will Have Lost the Battle for Democracy. And joining us now, Julian Zelizer, Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, And his latest article at CNN is Jim Jordan Sums Up What's Wrong with the House GOP. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julian Zelizer. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Julian. And it seems that Jim Jordan has picked up some support, particularly uh, House Armed Services Chairman uh, Mike Rogers and uh, the Defense Subcommittee Chairman uh, Ken Calvert out here from Riverside, California. So... Jordan has called for a floor vote on the Speaker Tuesday at noon. And so far, the machinations have gone on behind the scenes with the Republicans in the House very uh, aware of how dysfunctional and damaging it was, the 15-round election of the previous Speaker who was run out of town by Matt Gates and a handful of his radical friends. So They're avoiding the meltdown, but on Tuesday, 
I don't see anything different. Do you think they're, they're actually going to vote in Jim Jordan on the first round at noon on Tuesday? It's not clear he has the votes. He's certainly not approaching Tuesday with a solid uh, number, a solid path to the nomination. We saw how quickly this fell apart with Scalise, uh, who had been in a good position. And it's unclear. He's an incredibly controversial Republican among controversial Republicans. And so uh, there is a question, will everyone in the caucus go along with putting you know, the person, former Speaker John Boehner, called the legislative terrorist at the top of the party ticket. So let's talk about your article, Jim Jordan Sums Up What's Wrong with the House GOP. I mean, I guess it's in the category then, Julian, of uh, the Trumpification of the GOP. It's not just Jim Jordan, who people are now referring to as GYM Jordan, but you've got Tommy Tuberville in the Senate along with J.D. Vance, You've got Lauren Bobert, Margie Taylor Green, Matt Gates. This is this new strain of legislative terrorists that have infected our politics and poisoned our body politic. And they're not going away. They're not. And this is part of a long-term kind of secular change in the Republican Party that has only accelerated since the Trump presidency. And you have a cohort of Republicans uh, who are not only basically willing to do anything uh, in pursuit of power, uh, in their efforts to assert their own power within the Republican Party, but they're just not committed to governing at all. That's not a priority for them. Uh, and so all of this raises questions, obviously, for what happens in November um, uh, when the funding for the government uh, runs out again. Uh, do we enter a shutdown? But one party is now really uh, being led, being controlled by a generation of Republicans who don't have much interest in the basic business of being an elected official. The most embarrassing example of what you're talking about that took place recently where there was an intelligence briefing for members of the House Intelligence Committee, and the briefers were just insulted with the most vitriolic just spitting out hatred at them for being members of the deep state and asking incredibly stupid questions about what kind of body armor should we give the Israelis. And they have no idea about what national security means, what foreign policy means. They have no interest in it. And they have absolutely blistering contempt for professionals in our government. So right. this is frightening. It is. And, and kind of this has been something all of us who follow politics have been discussing. But what you see is it clo it gradually creeps upward and upward uh, to the point these figures who are uh, kind of seeped in conspiratorial theory and who don't uh, listen at all to expertise are now the ones in charge. I mean, we don't know who will be speaker, but either way, I think the votes that Jordan is getting really reflects how significant this group is. And here we are uh, with yet another kind of true international security crisis unfolding, uh, first with the brutal, brutal attacks uh, the other day by Hamas, and now a war unfolding in Gaza, and then you still have Ukraine and, and all the other issues. And we don't even have a speaker. And once we do, it's going to be a speaker essentially controlled 
uh, by a caucus who will not follow protocol, so to speak, in trying to address these. And so you see front and center why this is so dangerous and why this is such a problem for the country. But the radicals, or the nihilists, I think is a better way to describe them, uh, and the know-nothings, they, and we, of course, you're an historian, Julian, I mean, how similar are they to the know-nothings of the 1850s? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're starting to reach toward the right comparisons, but uh, one of the things that I think is notable about the current generation is unlike anything in the 19th century, they are operating in a world where they are surrounded by media outlets that will fuel and promote a lot of what they have to say and social media instruments that make their anti-institutionalist way of thinking about politics and government, um, it's multiplied. Uh, their platform is unlike anything that Know Nothings could have imagined. Well, I don't know how you deal with you know, QAnon influence in our politics. I mean, there's no baseline, is there, if you've got conspiracies swirling around? That's absolutely right. Uh, and uh, it, it, each time it ratchets up in terms of what leaders are willing to say and what they're willing to allege, and there is no response from within the party, and Outside the party, it's almost uh, accepted as, well, that's just how Republicans are. You add those together and this is normalized. Uh, and I think that's what we're facing right now. E look, even uh, Congressman Scalise was being discussed almost as the moderate, uh, the, the, the establishment type, when he's not at all. He's just a step away from Jordan in terms of his thinking and tactics. And so the party has really shifted in a radical direction, and this will be a problem. This is the House of Representatives, which controls the purse strings and much more. Well, they've already essentially scuttled aid for Ukraine. How, how do you see that ever being revived? That's going to be harder. I mean, I think uh, that support has already faded within the Republican Party. My guess is nationally there's less immediate Pressure And now there's another crisis that will compete for attention on Capitol Hill. And, and I don't know how you revive it uh, if the House Republicans and many Senate Republicans are no longer interested in providing that money. Well, there's also a third crisis likely to happen, according to Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who's been warning lawmakers that at any time Azerbaijan could launch a military invasion of Armenia and you know, one wonders what the ability of the United States government to operate on so many different fronts at the same time uh, have to deal with a, a non-existent House, really. At this point, we don't have a House of Representatives, and we're not likely to have one. I don't think Tuesday we're going to have a speaker, do you? I, I don't know, and I, I, I've learned right now that predictions are just impossible to make. I don't think it's likely um, but I, I, I don't really uh, predict, but I think the larger point you're making, if every position in the U.S. government leadership position was filled and was filled by good people, this would be an incredibly fraught, difficult moment for national security and then all the other issues we face. But we don't have that right now. In fact, we don't even have a speaker. Uh, and this has gone on for a while now. Um, and so we are in this period uh, with tension, with uncertainty, with real danger. 
And the leadership is not just inadequate, it's not even there. Uh, and so this is yet another challenge, I think, uh, for the Biden administration and for others outside Washington. So what happens then, Julian Zelizer, if Jim Jordan is elected speaker? I mean, that is catastrophic, isn't it, to have somebody like that? And by the way, when I mentioned earlier the, the sort of inside joke going around now, they refer to him as GYM Jordan. Yeah. There's a documentary film coming out on HBO at some point relatively soon about his tenure as the assistant co- wrestling coach at Ohio State. And apparently all of the wrestlers involved have gone public and the, the evidence is just devastating about what happened and what Jim Jordan himself covered up. It's going to be very explosive and I, I wonder what it's going to be like having a speaker where 177 boys were abused by the team uh, wrestling team Dr. Richard Strauss from 1978 to 1998. He eventually killed himself in 2005, but the, apparently the, the documentary delivers the goods and Jordan looks absolutely despicable for covering up this serial abuse. Well, we will see, although we've seen uh, a former president also surrounded by immense controversy when he was running, when he was in office. And there, too, the party doesn't seem particularly moved by many scandals. And I'm not sure they will be with whatever's in the documentary. Uh, The story's pretty well told. We'll see. Uh, But I think that's a question. But obviously, the other question is Jordan is fully committed uh, to the most radical path possible. He will have no problem having the government shut down. And this is a governing problem. If, if you know, there's no baseline for what you can and cannot do, uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to imagine what the path forward is in December and January. So you think then uh, that it's almost inevitable that the government would be shut down, whether it's Jim Jordan or whether they keep a caretaker on and do some kind of compromise like the current pro tem chair? Look, a compromise or some kind of deal with the Democrats, but that seems very unlikely to me. That would be the only possibility of having people who are not going to allow the government to shut down. But of all the new candidates who are emerging and the fact that this rule remains in place, which makes it easy for the caucus to remove their leader, as happened with McCarthy, this motion to vacate um, with a very low threshold, the next Republican speaker, when there is one, is going to be in the exact same position. And I think they are going to lean towards shutdown. But isn't there a group that essentially support the outgoing speaker, the one that was railroaded by Matt Gates, Kevin McCarthy. And I'm wondering how much personality plays in here. First of all, it was the fact that Matt Gates hated McCarthy so much because McCarthy apparently refused Matt Gates's entreaties to have the Ethics Committee drop the investigation into his sex trafficking charges against an underage girls crossing state lines. And that infuriated Gates, and he went on this personal vendetta, which succeeded in getting McCarthy removed from the Speaker's chair. And then McCarthy, in turn, apparently hates Steve Scalise, so he helped torpedo his attempt to become the new Speaker. 
So what do you think the role of McCarthy's cadre is going to be like here in terms of being spoilers? I mean, in a curious way, they're also, relatively speaking, the adults in the room, aren't they? They are at this point, um, which, again, shows how much the shift has taken place. Uh, McCarthy's people want McCarthy back. McCarthy's given word that he's willing to come back. And so that would be a different endgame if somehow they can form an alliance, even with some who didn't like him, to get him back into place. That's the best option for the government to stay open rather than a caretaker, because McCarthy's already done it his regaining power would be a commitment to doing it again. That said, there is some real animosity, as you're saying, and I'm not sure they are going to allow uh, for him to come back into power ever after everything that has been said. But he is in the mix, and so we will see. So then just in closing, Tuesday they will come out from behind the closed doors where apparently a lot of this craziness has been going on, so they've spared the public. They At least they recognize that that's not a good look. And the fact that Jordan has called for a vote for him at noon on Tuesday may indicate that he's got some confidence there. Or have they just run out of time? Is it just the fact that they have to do something? They have to do something. And I think what's happened in the Middle East is only put a bigger spotlight on their inability to choose a leader. And so... Uh, he might be confident, but at a minimum, I think there is a sense that they can't simply not even be meeting at this point, which only amplifies and advertises this crisis that's going on within the party uh, and in turn for the nation. Well, Julian Zelzer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Julian Zelzer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, where his latest article at CNN is Jim Jordan Sums Up What's Wrong with the House GOP. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the results of Sunday's election in Poland, which proved to be a welcome reversal of democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Jan Kubik, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a professor at the University College London. His books include The Power of Symbols Against the Symbols of Power, Post-Communism from Within, Social Justice, Mobilization and Hegemony, and 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Commemoration. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jan Kubik. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us, Jan, and I know you're studying the results coming in from Sunday's election in Poland, but it looks as if Poland's ruling Law and Justice Party uh, that was seeking a third term, they've been in power for eight years, and they've moved the country way to the right. Its leader, Kaczynski, said that we are preparing for a long march, so, and we need uh, not two but three terms to do that. So now you have the very real possibility that the former president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, will be able to put through, put together a coalition government from the centre. So are you confident uh, that Tusk will be able to put together a government? Um, 90%. Uh, meaning that there is a chance, and some observers um, worry about it, that Kaczynski will try to play you know, various cards, including some delay tactics first, and then maybe in the extreme case, he would try to introduce uh, some kind of state of emergency. Um, I don't know, invoking, for example, danger on, at the border with Belarus or something like that. Uh, but I think it's highly unlikely Given the fact that the victory of the so-called democratic opposition is uh, relatively huge, uh, they are now, it seems they will have about 54% of the vote uh, against, well, 45, 46 for the other side. So that's, that's very decisive. So that will mean uh, that they've secured 249 seats out of the 460-seat uh, lower house of parliament? They will be around that, yes. That's, no. that's at the moment, but yeah, at least 248. So just to go over the results, law and justice got 36.1% of the votes and the opposition civic coalition led by Donald Tusk, got 31%. And then the centrist Third Way Coalition got 14%. The left party got 8.6%. And the far-right Confederation, 68 So it will be a coalition of the Civic Coalition, the Third Way Coalition, and the left party. And I understand this is also another small party that would normally vote with the right, but they're they're fed up with law and justice. Is that right? Which party? I'm trying to find the name of it here. No, uh, nobody else is going to make it across the threshold. You have to have crossed 5% of the vote for the party and 8% for a coalition. So the left actually is a coalition, so they're just above the threshold, but it seems almost impossible that they will fall below. I mean, the last, uh, I am, the, the the actual results now are reported for 95% of the 
of the electoral districts, uh, and that's the the result is slightly different. The the ruling party Law and Justice is at 36.1, and uh, Civic Coalition at 30. But um, the other three are more or less what you said. So, yeah, I think this is now almost sure that the coalition of those three parties will have a pretty comfortable majority. But the the president has the next move, so he can ask, as he announced, the leader of the party that got most votes, which is law and justice, to try to form a government first. But they, together with Confederation, have about 43, 44, so they will not be able to do that. Moreover, some leaders of the Confederations were running on the anti-law and justice platform, so it's going to be complicated. They, They may have an internal fight over it. And and President Duda is, of course, an ally of law and justice. But the party that I was trying to remember the name of is the small agrarian PSL party. Oh, and it I understand folded into the third way. They're, they're folded, as I was saying, they folded into the third way, yes. even though they, you know, normally supported law and justice. So can you make a case, Jan, that this is in a way similar to the United States, you've got the right-wing party uh, that's been in power, and we've had a President Trump that's been in power. The law and justice, their main support comes from provincial and rural areas and among the less well-educated, which is certainly similar with Trump's MAGA base. And the good news here, if it applies to the American analogy that I'm offering up here, is that young people came out in large numbers to vote against this right-wing government, which, of course, has banned abortion, which is similar to what the Republicans in the Supreme Court have done here. So is there any analogy there that works for you? Yes. Um, There are two additional elements that are worth thinking about. Poland has also the division into blue, uh, an equivalent of the blue and red states. And what is interesting, they are kind of grouped geographically. So the east and the south is the equivalent of red, and the north and west is an equivalent of blue. And it has something to do with the complicated history of Poland and the 19th century partitions of Poland, where Poland didn't exist on the political map. Uh, but it's a longer story, but it is visible very much on the electoral maps since the fall of communism. And the slight correction to the, your remark about the young people, there is still a very important difference um, across the gender line. Young women vote uh, most, in large, much larger numbers than young men for the left, the coalition, the left, the new left. And the young men uh, vote much more often than young women for the Confederation. Uh, Most of them, perhaps because of its economic program, which is extreme neoliberal agenda, you know, basically rely only on yourself and forget about the welfare state in any form. 
this kind of uh, program. I see. But there was a stunning 73% turnout on Sunday, which is 11% higher than 2019. Yeah, that's the highest turnout since the fall of communism, including the election, a semi-open election that kicked out the communists uh, from power. So it is, you know, you have to say that both sides managed to mobilize its its supporters. Uh, Poland has traditionally had uh, one of the lowest levels of electoral mobilization in Europe. So now it looks much better. Um, and it seems that the most important part is those who didn't vote in the previous elections in 2019, many, many of them, most of them voted against the ruling party uh, once they decided to vote. So in a way, I mean, this is the preliminary analysis. This uh, indicates that mobilizing non-voters worked better for the opposition than for the ruling party. So we'll see whether that happens here in the United States next year, Jan. But yeah. how is this playing out, though, in terms of the regional problems that the EU and NATO and the US have had particularly with Hungary, with its democratic backsliding, along with Poland's democratic backsliding. And they both protected each other in terms of being able to prevent sanctions uh, because you have to have unanimity amongst the EU and Poland always sides with Hungary or vice versa. So uh, how is this going to impact Orban? And also you've had this move to the right in Slovakia with Orban's pal in Slovakia, Fico, who has already said that he wants to stop aid to Ukraine. Uh, and of course, we know that Orban is definitely pro-Putin. So what what are the ramifications of this electoral change in Poland? Well, that, you know, obviously it changes the, uh, the, the field of forces in Central Europe. Poland now will be firmly... Um, a Western, uh, a Western ally and uh, U.S. ally, particularly the Democrats, and that will increase the pressure on uh, Orbán. He will no longer have a, a pal in in Warsaw. Um, whether it's going to change his behavior, I doubt it, but it will certainly going, it's going to be more difficult for him uh, to to be so obstinate. Um, as far as Slovakia goes, you know, I it is I I've observed Fico for well twenty some years. He is a skillful consummate player. I don't buy the story that he's so pro-Russian. He he is playing the game. Uh, uh, you know, when it works for him on a specific issue, he shows more his kind of pro-Russian. Side, but uh, he often also expresses support for uh, Western policies. You know, Slovakia is in the eurozone; Poland is not, for example. So that is also a part of the. It is very strongly embedded in the EU, and um, he. I think he knows that. You know, one explanation of for his strong anti-Ukrainian, pro-Russian rhetoric was he already was calculating 
that he will need to uh, get some um, other parties uh, to form a coalition. In other words, he wouldn't be able to govern himself. And so this pro-Russian tone was uh, perhaps a, a signal for uh, the, the one of the, 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 the Slovak National Party, which eventually he, they, they just formed the, the government, right? So that is the clearly... Um, a, a, a right-wing supporter of Putin, but I think Putzo, uh, uh, Fitzel will be sort of maneuvering between uh, Moscow and Brussels. And what about the sanctions against the backsliding in Hungary? Poland used to protect Orban by vetoing those efforts. So... Will the EU be able to sanction? I mean, one of the most outrageous things about Orban is that he takes all these EU agricultural subsidies and hands them out to his cronies. Yeah, it's um, as was famously described and analysed by Bolin Magyar, a Hungarian political scientist. This is a mafia state. It's very much similar to Putin's Russia uh, in many respects. Um, well... <laughs> He will be alone, you know. He, I, 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 I think that Fico will be a reluctant ally, um, uh, and Tusk will be not at all. I mean, he will actually the the, the strongest opposition to uh, Hungarian uh, or Orban's policies and ideas may be coming from Pol- uh, from Warsaw soon, you know. So. Yeah, this this is going to increase the pressure on him and maybe marginally will modify his behavior. I don't know, hard to say. But well, it's young, a good go situation ahead. for the, the, you know, the Democrats and those. Uh, this is definitely a move, a, a serious move, given Poland's size in the direction of uh, halting the, this process of democratic backsliding on the eastern flank of uh, the European Union. Well, Jan Kubik, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Sure, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jan Kubik, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University and professor at the University College London. His books include The Power of Symbols Against the Symbols of Power, Post-Communism from Within, Social Justice, Mobilization and Hegemony, and 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Commemoration. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing whether the reactionary forces in Guatemala, led by the corrupt outgoing president and his crooked attorney general, backed by the military oligarchs, drug cartels and vigilantes, can deny the popularly elected government of President-elect Arevalo his right to govern. Soy puro guatemalteco y me gusta bailar el sol con las notas de la marimba también baila mi corazón cuando bailo con mi mar 
Hasta un grito me sale así Qué rechulas son las inditas cuando las Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anita. Heis- and joining us now, uh, and joining us now is Anita Isaacs, a professor of social sciences and political science at Haverford College. She's the author of Politics of Military Rule and Transition in Ecuador, and At War with the Past: The Politics of Transitional Justice in Post-War Guatemala. And she's the co-author of an article at the New York Times: If the Election Deniers Succeed. Guatemala will have lost the battle for democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anita Isaacs. Thanks for having me. So the Guatemalan people did express their democratic intentions and preferences in electing a new president, uh, but the outgoing president clearly does not want him to take his seat in government, and nor does the country's Attorney General, Maria Consuela Porras. So this is pretty brazen, isn't it, that these reactionary obstructionists are so in your face in terms of their absolute determination to hold on to power and in the face of widespread recognition of their corruption? Yes, it is. I mean, it's this is Guatemala's January 6th, uh, except that there's a better than even chance that they might ultimately succeed. And how could they succeed except through what doubling down on their brazenness? And is it because there are powerful interests behind the scenes, like the military that's notoriously corrupt, often tried to tied to drug dealers and a incredibly reactionary oligarchy? Is that the that's, situation? Uh, yeah, you, <laughs> you've kind of nailed the situation. What's happened is that um, what you know, Guatemala has has long been governed by a group of actors who have very little interest in democracy, and over the past several years, they've demonstrated their 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 disinterest in democracy has become a, a disregard for democracy and an effort to uh, gradually revert to authoritarianism, sort of step by step by undermining or hollowing out democratic institutions. The group is an informal alliance known as the Pact of the Corrupt, which bring together members of uh, the politicians, including the president and the attorney general, Members, other members of the judiciary, judges, and prosecutors. It, they, it also includes former military officers and uh, members of the private sector. It's an informal alliance where these groups see it as in their interest. They don't necessarily all share the same interests, but they do share an interest in preventing the pursuit of democracy that would threaten their economic and political interests. So the overwhelming victory by Arevalo and the, his movement, uh, Samia, the seed party, yeah. that is just an inconvenience to them? Is that what you're saying? Well, they're hoping that it's an inc- it's become more than an inconvenience now. What happened is that they prepared painstakingly for these elections by removing, disqualifying on trumped-up charges any candidate that they believe would pose a serious threat to their control of power. 
uh, and they didn't pay attention. They neglected, they ignored um, the Arevalo candidacy because they didn't deem him a threat. He was polling only 3% in most polls at most. And they just didn't believe that he represented a serious threat. His movement was, you know, represents a small group of intellectual and urban progressive middle class folks. And they just didn't see it as being a viable option, political option. The problem was when they eliminated all the other possible reformist options, he was the last reformer standing and he managed to channel sort of popular discontent into, into support. And so he won, he came in second surprisingly in this first round of voting. And then when they tried to block and engineer sort of either sort of a second round in which he wouldn't be able to compete or would find his competition stymied, then it just served to really catapult him and ensure that he would win the second round. So now they're continuing post the second round to do what they can to either eliminate his party, disqualify his party on some trumped up technicalities, or to just block him from from taking power. So where does it stand then in terms of of blocking the Movimentio Samia party, Aravello's party? Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's all spurious, but where does it stand? Well, things have become a bit of a stalemate because citizens have mobilized in the name of protecting democracy. And the country for the past close to two weeks has been virtually paralyzed by a series of citizen protests organized by indigenous, ancestral, traditional authorities to which, you know, and joined in by students and members of the urban middle classes. And the country has been virtually paralyzed and the power of the streets is now confronting the power that these corrupt individuals have to make use of judicial machinery to try to determine the political outcome. But so aren't these corrupt unclear. forces, sorry to interrupt you, but no, no. aren't these corrupt forces though using vigilantes to man roadblocks armed with assault rifles, etc. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, yes, they made, an, the thing is that they made an effort to incite violence because the protesters were too peaceful. They had hoped that the protests would turn violent and then they could enlist the military and the police to repress the protesters. But the protesters have remained incredibly peaceful. And so they resorted to armed vigilantes to try to create violence within the protests to provide a justification for repressing these protests. So this is, again, I've been using the word flagrant and blatant. Uh, I guess it's maybe inadequate to describe the brazen nature of what's happening. But where is the United States and the AOS in this? I mean, you can't be spectators to this kind of outrage. No, the um, I, I have to say that you know I've been I'm one that has been you know fairly critical to very critical of the U.S. Uh, of U.S. passivity in the face of democratic backsliding in Guatemala over the past several years. But in this case, the U.S. has played a very active role. 
both publicly getting statements from high-level officials condemning the, the attempted power grab and working behind the scenes to pressure the government to allow the transition of power to take place. The OAS has played an extremely active role as well and is you know, actively trying to mediate between the protesters and the government at the moment and to find a solution that will, again, allow a peaceful transition to occur in on January 14th. So the U.S. and the OAS are very much involved uh, in trying to find a settlement that responds effectively to citizens' demands, which are demands to respect the electoral process. But it seems uh, that an opportunity was lost a little while back when the UN anti-corruption regime was shut down by these corrupt forces. Absolutely. It's the failure of the... the I mean, this occurred during the Trump administration, right? right? And the Trump administration had a transactional foreign policy that basically invited the Guatemalan regime to be loyal foot soldiers, you know, maintain relations with Taiwan, move their embassy to, in Israel to Jerusalem to prove their loyalty and to serve as a front guard in deterring migration northwards. And the Guatemalan regime used their leverage, you know, played their loyal card, their loyalty card, and the Trump administration basically turned a blind eye to the trampling of democracy that was taking place in Guatemala. The Biden administration Biden himself as vice president had been a very, very strong, ardent supporter of the International Commission Against um, Impunity, and the U.S. had been one of its principal funders. The Biden administration has had a complicated relationship to immigration and has not changed, been able to or willing to change U.S. immigration policy as much as it promised to or people hoped it would. And Guatemala has continued in many ways to play a similar role that it played during the Trump administration. But the U.S. has been more outspoken uh, about the need to uh, prevent democratic backsliding. Uh, and this time, certainly after these elections and the attempt to violate the elections, proved a bridge too far for, for the United States. But if the reactionary criminal forces led by the outgoing president and his attorney general and with these other military thugs and uh, drug dealers and corrupt mm -hmm. uh, oligarchs waiting in the wings uh, using vigilantes to disrupt peaceful demonstrations in the hope that they can have a provocation and an excuse to mm -hmm. crack down. We've seen this unfortunate scenario. If that comes to pass, then you'll have an even greater exodus of immigrants from Guatemala into the United States, won't you? Absolutely. Abs yeah, I mean, you, you, you're absolutely right. This is what's happening now with citizens taking to the streets and particularly rural indigenous communities paralyzing the country and speaking out in favor of democracy and uh, you know, pushing back against the regime is... is a moment of hope 
And if those hopes are dashed, if repression replaces or, you know, repression ends up eliminating the possibility for protest and for democratic change, then immigration will increase apace. There's absolutely no doubt about it. The question is how much leverage the U.S. actually has, honestly. I think that the U.S., U.S. policymakers, I do believe that they understand that and they do see this as an opportunity to effectively marry their interest in thwarting, uh, stemming undocumented, unauthorized migration and promoting democracy. But it's unclear whether they have what it takes to achieve that result. But this just adds to the regional misery, doesn't it? You've got a corrupt and incompetent government in Venezuela that's driven out, what, a third of its population, Mm -hmm. even more, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are coming down to the southern border. You've got the same situation in Cuba, where there's been a massive exodus of people disaffected. There was a a brief moment when citizens protested in this kind of sclerotic uh, communist government, and then they cracked down, and now they're all leaving. And then you've got the same situation with with this horrible Ortega character down there in Nicaragua. Uh, He used to be a revolutionary, and now is one of the great reactionaries, and... He's imprisoning all of the opposition Mm -hmm. and driving people out of Nicaragua. Things have improved somewhat in Honduras because you have a decent government there now. El Salvador is run by like a little techno crook who's a real (laughs) reactionary uh, as well. So you can expect more people to be fleeing El Salvador. The whole picture is pretty bad, is it not? Yes, yes, I agree. I I completely agree. And I also would say that the election of Arevalo and an Arevalo administration, if it is allowed to govern effectively, would actually represent a beacon of hope in the region. Arevalo is a very serious, moderate, pragmatic leader. And his administration would try and enact changes that are very much in concert with with what the U.S. would wish to see happening in the region. So it's both the fear and the promise that exists side by side. But it's just not clear how much leverage the United States has and, I guess, whether it's willing to take the very bold steps that would be required perhaps to push recalcitrant members of the private sector into a more forceful pro-democratic position. But what about educating the American people about the reality that if you don't have governments in this in the region to the south in Central America and, and in Mexico that represent the people, then you have an exodus uh, coming here for a safer and more secure life. And yep. this has become obviously a major 
political issue here. And I think the demonization of immigrants and the demagoguing of the border issues has led to essentially the American people wanting to close that border, at least a, a lot. I don't know whether it's a majority or not, but we know that that is Trump and the Republicans' position. So Trump being the chaos president, and he's got you know, Jim Jordan likely to be the next speaker. Yeah. He, he say you'll have not only a dysfunctional executive branch, you'll have a dysfunctional uh, House of Representatives as well. They will just make matters worse because Trump did, as we pointed out earlier. He mm -hmm. allowed them to close down the UN anti-corruption operation. So if you could educate the American people and say, look, you have a stake in this. We should be helping these people live a decent, secure, safe and potentially prosperous existence uh, and get rid of all these crooks and then we won't have a problem on the border. Who's making that argument? I think that people have been, yes, I mean, again, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, but at this stage of my life slash career, I wonder how many more times I can try to make this argument and my fellow scholars and others can make the same argument. It seems to, you know, historically fall on deaf ears. And so I, I do think that there's a small window for the next few months where I am really impressed by the ability of the U.S. government to really get it. Um, but I don't hold out, you know, I, I, I guess that that argument has been made historically and it doesn't seem to carry much weight. And so, you know, I'm just, I, I'm not that optimistic about how that becomes understood or captures the popular imagination here. I mean, the other thing also is that we have a complicated relationship to migration here. It's, we both don't want um, unauthorized migrants and we very much want them to do all kinds of jobs. And that hasn't changed a whole lot. So there continues to be enormous demand for the people who are now, you know, manning the barricades in, in Guatemala, but who might be repressed tomorrow and pick up and you know, start migrating to and join their relatives and neighbors in migrating to the United States. Well, Anita Isaacs, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anita Isaacs, who's a professor of social sciences and political science at Haverford College. She's the author of Politics of Military Rule and Transition in Ecuador and At War with the Past, The Politics of Transitional Justice in Post-War Guatemala. And she is the co-author of an article at the New York Times, If the Election Deniers Succeed, Guatemala Will Have Lost the Battle for Democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half